about our vision here at St. Peter's. We want to join God in the renewal of all things. That means we want to join God in spiritual renewal, social renewal, and cultural renewal. Because Jesus, he is in the business of making all things new. And through him, we get to see glimpses of heaven intersecting with earth. And so we want to join Jesus in those places and in those moments where we can say, there it is. The kingdom of God seems palpable. We're getting a glimpse of things as they really ought to be. And we think the center for this sort of renewal is the church. We think a community like this one, gripped and transformed by the gospel, is how God brings this sort of renewal into the world. So at our first preview service, we looked at spiritual renewal. Our second one, we looked at social renewal. And today, we are going to look at cultural renewal. And to do that, we need to ask four questions. The first is this, what is culture? The second, why does it need to be renewed? And then how does God renew culture? And then how do we join God in cultural renewal? So let's dig into it. The first one, what is culture? Very simple answer, culture is complex. Culture, it's the stuff that we make. Uh, it involves language, you know, words spoken and written, poetry, art, and music. It's food and it's wine. It's, uh, it's technology. It's the invention of the wheel and laptops and iPhones. The culture is also the meaning infused into the things we make. It's our values and our morals and our customs. And it's, it's, it fills everything about life. It gives our lives shape and definition. And we can never step outside of culture. We're born into it. We're immersed in it. I like the way Andy Crouch describes culture. He's a Christian thinker. He says, culture is the name for our relentless restless human effort to take the world as it's given to us and make something else. I love that. We take the world as it's given to us and we try to make it into something else. Crouch is hinting at the fact that God made us to be culture makers. And this goes all the way back to the beginning of Genesis where God created us to add our own touch to his good creation, to join him in continuing to create within his already good creation. We were to take his good creation and we were to shape it as we make culture, as we do things like art and music and poetry, as we make tables and chairs and all kinds of houses, towers and buildings and cities. And doing this, this was innate in us. It's part of who we were made to be. And so our reading today, Isaiah 60, which is filled with so many great images, it gives us a picture of the potential of our culture making. And God's picture of culture is just breathtaking. It's, it's beautiful. And a lot, a lot could be said about Isaiah 60. So this morning, we're just going to hone in on what it says about culture and culture making. So this is a vision, a God-inspired vision that the prophet Isaiah received. And God gives him a vision about the new heavens and the new earth and about new Jerusalem, God's new city. And in this city, we see that Jesus is going to be Lord over all things. And that there will no longer be any violence in this city. And this city will have a radical hospitality, that the nations will actually be welcomed into it. That it will be able to host believers from all times and all place. And the city, so it's massive. And it's marked by a radical justice. The absence of suffering and death. And then there's also a plurality of flourishing cultures. And so if we were to walk the streets of God's city, if we were to take in its sights, its smells, its vendors, 
one thing would become apparent. God's new city is attractive. People from all over the world are drawn into it. This is why Isaiah says things in uh, verses 1 through 5, like, the nations shall come to your light, or they shall gather together, they'll come to you, and the wealth of nations shall come to you. And I want to dig into that. The presence of the world's cultures in God's new city. As you continue in Isaiah 60, verses 5 through 18, they describe many different nations coming into God's city. And at the time, these nations would have represented nations all over the known world. In other words, Isaiah is saying, the whole world is being drawn into this new city. And the stuff that comes into this city is as diverse as the cities that come in. You have camels from Midian and Ephah, with Sheba's gold and frankincense, the flocks of Kedar, the rams of Nebaioth, the ships silver and gold of Tarshish, Lebanon's Cyprus and Pines. Now, a lot of these goods in these cities don't mean much to us, do they? So let's take Lebanon for an example. Ezekiel, in his book, when he talks about the cedars of Lebanon, he says that the trees in the Garden of Eden envied them, that these trees were the very best of the best of the trees in the whole world. So I want you to, with me, imagine that you're at a farmer's market, and you're walking in, and you're taking in the different vendors the very best of the best of the world's cultures. And so on one side, you see, you know, the silk from India. And then you see the wine from France, because that's how you have to say it when you're cultured. You see the porcelain from China, the oil of Saudi Arabia, the technologies of Silicon Valley, you know, the redwoods of California, and of course, the beef of Alberta. I just got a woo-woo, there was an Albertan here. Isaiah, Isaiah is showing us that the wealth and the highest culture of all the nations is being drawn into God's new city. And it's the very best of the best. And imagine, none of these things being used for ill. No corruption in their pr production. And Isaiah says in verse 7 that God uses these things to beautify his beautiful house. How amazing is that? God made us to be culture makers, and then God takes the very best of the best of our culture making and uses that to decorate his new city and his house. Doesn't that just get you excited? Doesn't that make your heart beat a little faster? But don't you also begin to see a gap? We have the fine silk of India, but sometimes that comes at the cost of also having child laborers. We have the oil of Saudi Arabia, but sometimes that comes at the cost of our environment. We have amazing technology, but sometimes that comes with the cost of landfills of outdated garbage. We have the beef of Alberta, but sometimes that comes at the cost of treating animals with dignity. We know deep down that our actual culture making comes with side effects. And God's not unaware of this. Let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. It'll be on the screen. Um, the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills against every high tower and every fortified wall, against the ships of Tarshish, and against the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, 
and the lofty pride of man shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. At the very beginning of Isaiah's book, God is against the very best of the best of culture. God's judgment is against the cedars of Lebanon. God's judgment is against the ships of Tarshish. And these things are showing up in his new city in Isaiah 60. So let's look at Lebanon as an example again. What was wrong with these beautiful trees? I think it has everything to do, not with the trees, but how the trees were being used. I grew up in Victoria, and when I was in my early teens, my friends and I, uh, we used to go to this forest that was about a five-minute walk from my parents' house to play. And as we would go into the forest, uh, the pines were so tall that just minutes in, you, were, you just forgot about the city. And we would find these kind of secret spots in the forest to hang out. And one day we found this spot and we said, you know what? This spot would be perfect to craft the Taj Mahal of tree forts. And so we sent one another out, you know, in scouting expeditions to build this tree fort, this very tree fort. And, you know, so someone would come back with, you know, a big piece of wood for the wall and, and someone else would find another log that could work for the floor. And, and some people would bring bushes for it for the roof, and if I'm honest, our tree fort looked more like a crime scene from Law and Order, but for us, it was awesome. It was, you know, it was the best of the best, made up of pine, cypress, and ferns from British Columbia. But how did the fort get used? What was the motivation of a bunch of preteen boys? We stashed away all the things that our parents said we couldn't have in this tree fort. It was just funny because I'm actually seeing my best friend's mom in the audience, so I feel a little weird about this. Um, we would have candy, like ample. Like candy would just be like flooding the floor. That was our carpet. Um, tests with bad grades, you know, we would put them there. And we, we had lighters and, and cigarettes and magazines no boys should possess. You know, the wood that made up the fort, the wood itself, what was wrong with the wood? Nothing. But what was it used for? Think about the magazines we stashed. The paper, the ink, the glue. In and of itself, nothing wrong with it. But containing images of women made in the image of God, being misused, being dehumanized. Let's go back to Lebanon then. Lebanon's trees, they're good. They're good in and of themselves. The psalmist writes even in Psalm 104, verse 16, the trees the Lord are, of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted. God owns the trees of Lebanon. They're a part of his good creation. It's how the trees start getting used that's problematic. Lebanon as a nation started using them for proud and lofty purposes, Isaiah says. They were self-serving. They were used to make a big deal of Lebanon rather than making a big deal of the God who gave them the trees. And so culture needs to be renewed because the culture we produce can be misdirected. The trees of Lebanon, you know, they need to be cut down. The ships of Tarshish, they needed to be shattered. The tree fort of Casa de Stern needed to be dismantled because our culture making can be bent. Our culture making can be bent towards selfish ambition, manipulated for greedy gain, leveraged in such a way that others are oppressed. The meaning we give to cultural goods can be divisive. It creates status and class. It raises some up and pushes others down. 
And simply put, the culture that we make needs to be renewed because we are a broken people in a broken world. And we get so caught up in our culture making that it becomes solely about us and not about God. This is why we need cultural renewal. And so when we look at Isaiah 60 and when we see the very best of the best of culture showing up, we know it can't be showing up just as it is today. That something must be going on. So how do they make their entrance? Which takes us to our next question. How does God renew culture? Richard Mao, he's the president of Fuller Seminary uh, in California. He wrote this great little book called When the Kings Come Marching In. And, and every one of you, like, go and buy this book. It is fantastic. It's a bunch of short essays on Isaiah 60. And he deals with this question. Why are the ships of Tarshish? Why are the trees of Lebanon in God's new city? And Mao says, when God breaks something, it's not like breaking a vase. It's like breaking a horse. I want you to memorize that. When God breaks something, it's not like breaking a vase. It's like breaking a horse. Lebanon's cedar, the ships of Tarshish, the silk of India, the oil of Saudi Arabia, these goods, they might end up in God's new city but only because they've first been broken of the idolatrous and prideful meaning we've given to them. God breaks them of any self-serving, selfish, arrogant, and prideful inclination. God cuts them down when they're lifted up for humanity's own glory. Because there's no place in God's new city for the distortion of his good creation. There's no place for culture-making that exists at the cost of other people's dignity. But I want you to hear this. God isn't about reckless destruction. In, in the new city, Isaiah 60, verse 9, says that the ships of Tarshish come in for the name of the Lord your God because he made you beautiful. It shows that our culture making, it needs to be recalibrated. That when meaning, the meaning that we give to our culture making, when it, that meaning is God's glory, all of a sudden, what we make of the world could end up in God's new city. The implication being that everything, absolutely everything we do is meant to point to God, to reveal his beauty, to reveal his glory. So then, how does God actually renew this? He breaks it first of its misdirection. And then he redirects it towards his glory and his name. And in the new city, all of humanity's creative ingenuity finds its fullness at last in God. So the question then is, what do we do here and now? Now, although we're looking at this future city, we see how God's going to break things. There's an important um, implication that we don't want to miss. That God hasn't abandoned a culture gone awry, so neither can we. You see, there's some Christians who think this world is bad and we need to abandon it. We can't fix it at all. We just need to kill time until God shows up and gives us this new city. This is a defeatist point of view. And this isn't what's described in Isaiah 60 at all. There's some continu like, there's continuation between the old and the new in the city. And yeah, there's things that are different, but there's elements, there's overlap. And furthermore, to abandon culture is actually to abandon how God created us. God made us to be culture makers. He made this good creation. He wants to redeem it. Then in the other extreme, there's Christians who think 
We can just keep making the world a better and better place, and, and we can make this new city here and now. It's a triumphalist viewpoint. We can be the change we want to see. We can progress into a better future. But we have to remember, Isaiah 60, this isn't what we see. That It's been 2,800 years. Let that sink in. 2,800 years since Isaiah recorded this prophecy. And despite all our advancement between then and now, we have never accomplished a city like this. Not even close. It shows us that we don't raise complete cultural renewal from the earth up. God brings complete cultural renewal from heaven down. And so then the question is, if it's not a defeatist viewpoint, if it's not a triumphalist viewpoint, how do we join God in cultural renewal here and now? And I think the answer is that we become signposts. Among many different signposts in the world, we point away from ourselves and we point to God and his city to come. We begin living as citizens of this city in the midst of a world that is still broken. And so we begin to seek renewal in our lives, in our families, in our work, in the things we make, in our city. Not because we have some ambition to change the world, but because God, in renewing us, is making us glimpses of the world to come. And so as he transforms us, we point towards how the world really could be. And so I want to sketch this out a little more. I think first, uh, to be a signpost means we need to be spiritually renewed. Spiritual renewal always precedes every other sort of renewal. The brokenness of our culture is just a mirror of our own brokenness. The beginning of Isaiah 60, it describes the earth as being under a darkness under a thick darkness, covering the whole earth. And it says, by ourselves, we can't see. We're covered in darkness. And Isaiah says, our sight is so bad, in chapter 5, that we call evil good and good evil. I don't know for you, but for me, that is the most terrifying verse in the entire Bible. Like, think about the implications if this is true, if we actually call good evil and evil good. But we don't have to despair. I love the promises that start coming to us in the the last half of Isaiah 60. Look at verse 20. The sun shall no more be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord shall be your everlasting light. And then he says it again in a slightly different way. Like He emphasizes this. God's going to be our light to shine in the darkness. And then St. John in Revelation builds on this in Revelation 21. He says, this light is Jesus. He is our lamp. Jesus is the one who can illuminate our paths. And he is the only one who can help us be, find our way back to God through this darkness. Which means he's the only one who can show us how to join God in cultural renewal because he is the only one who can ultimately renew all cultures. He alone can eradicate the distorting power of sin, evil, and death. And Jesus alone can declare, Behold, I have made all things new when the new heavens and the new earth finally come. Now, I just want to say, I, I realize some of you here might be figuring out, is Jesus really who he said he is? And this sounds pretty intense. And I want to say, you, you're welcome here as you are with your questions. And take as long as you need to figure out if Jesus really is who he said he is. But don't take any longer than necessary. Because if he is, then the implications for our lives are huge. It changes everything. 
But you are welcome here with those unanswered questions and your struggles. But for all of us, regardless if we've ever trusted Jesus or whether you've trusted him for a long time, it all starts and ends here. Spiritual renewal has to precede our cultural renewal. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Only through faith in Jesus do we become signposts of the world to come, of new creation. Only through Jesus do we become citizens of this city to come. And between now and then, we need Jesus as a lamp for our feet so that we can see how to walk through the challenges of living in a world that is still broken, so that we can begin to shine his light. Second, to join God in cultural renewal by being signposts, I think it means allowing God to break and renew us. Isaiah shows us how God will ultimately renew culture by breaking and redirecting it in his new city. And I think God revealed this to Isaiah so that we could start living out that pattern now. That God is trying to show us how to follow him and that God will meet us and help us identify what is proud and lofty and what is actually for his name and his glory and his beauty. And so we go through this continual breaking and redirecting because God made us to be culture makers and Jesus wants to renew that part of our humanity. Let me give you an example. When I did my undergrad, it was in graphic design. And I had one focus in my undergrad, have the best portfolio better than all my other peers. That was my only goal. And then in my first job in the industry, uh, it was always about my portfolio. It was always about getting on the best projects so that I can continue to build my best portfolio. And then even in my personal life, I would sacrifice time and countless nights to put extra time into the work so that I could have the best portfolio, so that I could win awards, so that I could be featured in magazines, so that Tyra Banks would call me and I would be Canada's next top designer. You know, my culture making, it had, it had no meaning or significance outside of my own goals. I could see nothing but my portfolio. and It became exhausting after several years. And so eventually, a few friends and I started a design agency in Orlando. And we built it upon a simple premise. We said, being Christians in the marketplace, it has to be more than just paying our taxes and being nice people. It's got to look like living as citizens of the city to come. And for us, that meant embracing that our, embracing service. Because the design industry, anyone who's worked in it or had design done for you, you know the design industry is a service industry in denial. They just for, you just forget that we're serving. And so we embraced that. We, we struggled and we, we tried to stop worrying about winning awards or building our portfolio on the backs of our clients. And that meant entering into our clients' story, valuing them, listening to them, loving them well. And what was so surprising was that the work I ended up producing when I stopped focusing on myself was significantly better than when I was so self-focused. That the more that God was the center, the better the quality of the work seemed to be. And that didn't mean I started putting Jesus, you know, fish all over every design. Like, that's not what I mean when I say reorienting things. Like, if you're a musician, that doesn't mean you start just writing worship songs. But it means that you're deeply concerned about whether the quality of what you're making and its content reflects the city to come well. 
For some of you, that might mean writing worship songs. You know, for some designers, that might be serving churches so that their stuff looks better. But in the process for me, learning how to do that, God kept me in this continual pattern of being broken and redirected. We would get an awesome client, and this, all of a sudden I'm thinking about, okay, how can we do this so that we win an award and get another client? And God would call me out, and he would do that through the other people I was working with. He would do that through his presence and his Holy Spirit, like this conviction. It was always being redirected to laying down my aspiration, redirecting myself towards his city to come. So I want you to ask yourself, in, in the things you do, in your work, in your, in your creating, in the stuff you make, how much time do you spend thinking about yourself? How much time do you spend about thinking how this will advance your career or how this will help you stand head tall among the rest? The truth is, whatever we do, wherever we do it, if you follow Jesus, God will bring you into this pattern of breaking and redirecting. Because it's simply another way of saying, repent and believe. When Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand, what did, how did you respond? Repent and believe. And so in cultural renewal, we, we take that into the stuff and, and we repent of how we misdirect it and we believe and we try to join Jesus in redirecting it to God's new city. And I want you to remember that God, when he breaks us, it's not because he likes destruction. It's not like smashing a vase. It's for our best. It's for our good. It's for a better culture than we can imagine on our own. And when he does this, the light of Jesus begins to shine brighter in us. Third, to be a signpost of the city to come, it means that we have a radical hope. Our efforts, they might get shot down. They might go unnoticed. We might just crash and burn and fail. Because there's no guarantee that if we follow God in this, that everything we want will come true or that we'll change the world. That's okay. Look at verse 22 in Isaiah 60. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. This new city comes on God's time. It doesn't come through our own incremental efforts to build a better and better world. This gives us to be free and okay if things don't go the way we planned, if our making doesn't seem to change the world as we would have hoped. You might be asking, why? Why does that give us freedom? Because even if our culture making doesn't bring about the tangible results we would have hoped for, we know that it has a spiritual and lasting significance. That it does not go unnoticed by God. If God is the type of God who numbers each hair on every single one of our heads. He is the type of God who also loves our culture making and it matters to him. And it does not impede God's plan of ultimately bringing the new heavens and the new earth when Christ returns. That's our hope. We have a defiant hope in Jesus who will one day declare, behold, I have made all things new. And he is faithful and he will not disappoint us. And so we endure in the hope of Jesus. And as we do that, his light begins to shine brighter in us still. Finally, being signposts that point to the city to come means that we shine in the dark. We are lights in the dark. Look at Isaiah 60, verse 1. God gives his people two commands. Arise and shine. 
Arise and shine. Think about street lamps. They light up when it gets dark so that we can see where we're going, so we can get to where we want to be. Likewise, we're called to be lights so that people can see where the world is really going. And Jesus is is our light. He shines upon us and he renews us so that he can shine in and through us for the sake of drawing other people to himself. Which is why I think Isaiah says in verse 3 and 4, the nations will come to your light, kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes and see they gather together, they come to you. Which means that Jesus doesn't just save our souls. Jesus changes how we live here and now. And he does so in such a way that it's noticeable and that it's attractive. And so we shine and we're supposed to own this shining. We're also commanded to let Christ shine in and through us. Which is why we sing this little light of mine. No, we don't sing it. Okay. Sermon done. But we don't shine because we're so special. We don't shine because we're so good looking. We shine because God's grace is beautiful when it intersects with our lives. Think about verse 9. The ships of Tarshish come into the new city for the name of the Lord and because he has made you beautiful. The beauty God bestows upon you as you're renewed is appealing. And you're supposed to let that shine through you. And so, finally, I wanted to say, what are some practical ways we can shine? How can we take these commands seriously? Arise and shine. I want to look at a few of Jesus' sayings as, as he describes the culture of the kingdom of God, as he describes what it's like to belong to this city to come. He says, if you want to be great, you must become a servant. So it's not about seeking status or fame. And you don't need the credit for everything you do. You actually decrease to let Jesus increase. Jesus says the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. This parable is about radical equality. That you don't play favorites. You give people a chance, regardless of if they're cool or like you, or if they have the best resume. He also says, forgive, and you'll be forgiven. So you forgive, even when the hurt is deep. You don't gossip and you don't criticize about people that have hurt you. You extend forgiveness. And and this gives us even the freedom to be wrong and not be defensive. Jesus even says, whoever can be trusted in very little can also be trusted in much. And so you're faithful in the small tasks. You don't cut corners. You don't do things half-heartedly because you see the value of walking with God even in the most mundane tasks. Like conflict. You don't avoid conflict. Rather, you use it as an opportunity to extend grace. You don't address the behavior. You address the heart. Be it your spouse or your roommate or your child or just a friend. And he says so many more things. But can you imagine how brightly a community would shine when these things become the culture of the community and how they treat one another and as this culture seeps into the things that we make and the jobs that we do? Can you imagine that brightness? Jesus is the model then for how we're to be culture makers. We look to him. And through his spirit, he empowers and he saturates our culture making. Be it in the values present in the way we live our lives or the stuff that we make. In all things, 
and all things, be it writing songs or books, you know, making beds and raising kids, speaking the truth in love, in all things, we're offering glimpses and tastes of the city to come. But what's clear then is we can't shine like this without Jesus and without the presence of the Holy Spirit. So this means we have to center our lives around him, rising and lying down. We seek Jesus. We read his word. We get to know his voice. We talk to him, and most of all, we actually create time to listen to him. And we don't do it alone. We have a community. And sometimes the best question you can ask someone is, hey, can you help me figure out what it means to follow Jesus in this thing? And this thing in my life, or this thing in my work, or this thing in the world that I would like to see change, can you help me figure out what it might look like to follow Jesus? So it takes a community. It takes a community gripped and transformed by the gospel to join God in this sort of renewal. But as we see the culture of God's kingdom shaping our community, then we also take seriously his command to arise and shine. That our transformation isn't simply for our own sake, it's for the sake of the world. So we are gathered together to be transformed, and then we're scattered throughout the city to be lit and bright by his Holy Spirit, giving people glimpses of the city to come. It's a beautiful vision. So let's bring it back together. God hasn't abandoned a culture gone awry, so neither do we. And we join him in cultural renewal by being signposts that point to the city to come. And we become that as we're spiritually renewed by Jesus, as we're broken and remade by Jesus, as we put our hope in Jesus, as we are sent into the world by Jesus, shining by the light of his presence and Holy Spirit. This is how we join God in the cultural renewal of Vancouver.